This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And if you've just been diagnosed with a mental health disorder, it can be overwhelming to process. You know, what happens next? How will it change how you manage your mental health? So this is the third episode of My Mind and Me, a mini-series exploring what it looks like to seek help for your mental health. So on the previous two episodes, um, the first episode looked at how you can look for a trusted and qualified mental health provider. The second episode looked at what you can expect during therapy so you can look up those episodes by searching for my mind and me on bfm.my or on the bfm app and now on today's show we'll be looking at what to expect after you receive a mental health disorder diagnosis and joining me to do that today are um, Hasbi, a lived experience advocate and Shaleen Krisan, a clinical psychologist thank you so much for joining me today thank you for inviting thank us thank you for having us now I want to start off the show by talking about um, by, by talking about definitions for a bit because that's something we discussed right um, before we started this that there's the difference between talking about mental health condition and mental disorder um, maybe I could start with you Shaleen you know, is there a distinction between the two? Yes, usually when we refer to mental health disorder, we're talking about a specific disorder in which you fulfill the classification uh, according to you know, the guidelines given. So usually we use what we call as the DSM, the Diagnostic of Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And uh, so if you fulfill, let's say, a specific criteria, then we have a disorder for you. So that's the term disorder that we use. Whereas for mental health condition, it could be any sort of other uh, health issues that you feel that may not necessarily qualify a disorder. Order, but you're still struggling mentally, of course. So that's the main distinction between the two. Mm. And either way, for whether it's a mental health condition or a mental health disorder, you, um, it doesn't matter, right? You can still mm. see a mental health provider. Yes, yes of course. Mm. Now, I'll turn to you, Hasbi, you know, and, and I guess this will be more of a personal discussion for you as well. Um, what was it like for you when you received your diagnosis and what that journey was like for you? Sure. Um... When I first received my diagnosis for bipolar disorder, um, initially the diagnosis was for clinical depression. So I was put on some medication. When I received the first, uh, the first diagnosis for clinical depression, it finally um, gave me some sense of relief to know that, okay, it's something that can be addressed. Mm. It's something that can be um, managed, mitigated and dealt with. And I, I can finally exercise some control over these feelings that I had been experiencing on and off throughout my entire life, I think from young adulthood. Um, and then I had a bad reaction to the medication. Mm-hmm. And I was reassessed and I was given a new diagnosis, uh, which was type 2 bipolar disorder. There were mixed feelings. One was, why did it take so long? How come all these signs were missed uh, all these years? In hindsight, after getting the diagnosis, I realised, why, why, why didn't anyone bring this up with me before? So there were some, I guess, some uh, elements of anger. But largely it was relief because, OK, now I can finally start to manage what had been troubling me all these years. Um, having said that, not everyone's journey will be the same and the journey will not be linear. Hmm. 
Shirlene, what do you hear from your clients as well, you know, who find themselves in such a situation where they have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder? Like Hasbi said, not everyone's um, journey is the same, not everyone's journey is linear, but I guess are there similarities that you've seen? Mm, yes, definitely. Uh, we can generally see two different kind of responses. And this is very much depending on their understanding of mental health and also the amount of stigma they have against mm-hmm. mental health uh, disorders specifically. And the two general kind of responses that we can see are more either positive or negative. So the positive ones, like what has been mentioned, right, there's this big sense of relief and validation because finally after so long, they finally have a label that explains what they've been experiencing and it's something that people do experience. So there's that sense of validation and, you know, that um, support and affirmation that, oh, it's not just in my head, right? So that relief is such a big thing that a lot of people feel. And also like what has we said again, you know, that hope that, oh, okay, I I can get this treated. I can do something about this. And there are people there to help me to do this. So generally, there's a slight positive feeling. Um, The more negative response is the feelings of maybe shock, right? I didn't expect to get diagnosed with something, especially if the diagnosis is a bit, you know, uh, rare or something a bit more serious that needs medication, then there's a level of shock. There's some level of denial as well. Can't be happening to me. It's not me. I'm not like that. Right. Um, with that also comes a lot of sadness, grief, you know, uh, to think that, no, this is my life now. Now I have to focus on taking care of myself. You know, I've lost the liberty of living a free life. Again, this is very um, related to the stigma that's attached to mm. mental health disorders, right? Um, and what has been said, anger, right? Why did no one help me out? Uh, why is this happening to me? It's not fair. So those kind of feelings also come out with guilt as well. Is this my fault? Did I do something, you know, to let me to this point? So there's a lot of negative processes and sometimes you may feel both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Some people may feel positive about it and also negative depending on where they're at at that point. Yeah. Mm. One emotion doesn't necessarily negate the other. Yes, absolutely. If I can add a bit more, I think... That's actually a very good explanation. Initial feelings are not the only feelings that you will have. Mm-hmm. And I would frame it like this. Um, it's general, You are grieving. So the feelings that you experience, that anyone experiences through grieving. And what are you grieving? The loss of your old self. Mm-hmm. And so some people might experience relief at that. Some Because the old self may have been... Um, may have not been the person that you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So some people may experience relief. Some people may experience anger as well. But these emotions can change. And the, the period of processing, um, the period of grieving, uh, that the diagnosis that comes after getting a diagnosis can vary from person to person. I think one of the most important things that we are not really doing is actually... This is separate from the actual medical intervention, therapy and medication we don't really help people grieve. Mm. We don't really help people process that diagnosis. Um, so when, earlier I mentioned the relief could have been... Uh, it, it changed over time as well. I went through cycles of anger, sadness. Uh, but one of the things I think that we are not really doing well is helping people process a diagnosis. What does it mean? Uh, what are the changes that you can expect in your life? Or what can you expect with uh, medication? But we can talk about that a bit further down the road. Mm. And maybe I'll turn to you um, here, you know, what I guess what happens after someone receives a diagnosis, right? What kind of information um, should their mental health provider be going through with them and helping them to understand? 
So, well, the first thing that usually happens is, you know, when the client, it depends on how the client is receptive towards the diagnosis. So let's say, you know, they are still pretty much shaken by it. They need to process that diagnosis first. We usually try to do that. We would talk about, you know, educate them on the diagnosis, what that means. If the client can't accept the diagnosis because of stigma, mm -hmm. then we try to break the stigma first. So we talk about various kinds of stigma. Why do we feel negative towards mental health disorders? We talk about, you know, different kinds of institutional stigma that actually affect us, public stigma, self-stigma. We, we kind of educate at this point. Um, and once we educate and once the client's able to accept the diagnosis, um, then we can move on to the next step. So until they accept it or at least understand it roughly, we can't really move on because then they'll be in the state of, you know, confusion, right? Because to do a treatment plan, you need to be all in. If you're not all in and you're still kind of doubtful, sometimes it can be quite challenging for the treatment plan to work. So once we're done with that, then we work on the more high-risk priority stuff. So we try to prioritize what's most important. At that time, we'll see if there's any high-risk behaviors like any suicidal uh, thoughts or ideations, any self-harming behaviors. So we cover that first. Um, and let's say there's none of that. We talk about how, how well-functioning you are at this point. Are you functioning enough to be able to do any deeper processes or not? So let's say if you're not sleeping okay, you're not eating fine, uh, you can't get out of bed. We just focus on that first. So until you get to the point where you're able to, you know, sit down, focus and do deeper processing, then we move on to more like deeper treatments. So treatments here are very subjective. It really depends on the psychologist uh, that you're following or the, the psychiatrist that you're following, what approach they follow. So let's say if the psychologist is more CBT-oriented or mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy-oriented, then the kind of treatment will follow that approach. If your therapist is more psychodynamic, then it will follow that approach. So this is something that you may have to know, uh, in, or maybe you can talk to your therapist about it, as to what kind of approach works best for you as a person. So then the therapist would like, you know, say, okay, maybe now let's see if you have panic disorder. The first thing we'll try to do is exposure therapy if they're from a CBT approach. Mm -hmm. So what would, CB, what would uh, exposure therapy look like? We'll explain that. We would talk about how long it would take, how many sessions, uh, what would we expect during treatment. And um, we would check in with the client. Is this something that you can do? Mm -hmm. Is it something you want to do? Uh, what are the challenges that you foresee? What are your anxieties about it? And once the client's like, okay, let's do it, let's try, then we carry it out. Lah. So even though we carry it out according to some level of planning, uh, things always change along the way. Mm -hmm. So we always check in with the client. You want to see if this is working, if this is not working. What else can we do to move, change it up? At least to the point where we know that something is happening for the client. And if something isn't working and it's not getting to a point that they are actually healing and getting better, then we might have to change the treatment altogether or we refer out to someone else that might be better fitting for the client. Mm. It's yeah. all about managing expectations right from mm. the start, right? Because when you're, from what I understand, when you're setting goals, when you're explaining things to them, when you're talking about therapy, it's all about understanding that things might not go to plan. Things mm. may things may not go to plan. And and from there then it's a better understanding from both your perspective and the client's perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Now, Hasbi, when you mentioned about how your diagnosis changed, right? And is that something that people should consider as well, that diagnosis are not diagnosis might not remain, that they can change with time. Is that a possibility for most people? I would say it's a possibility for the majority of people who enter the healthcare, public healthcare system. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Because that? one, it's very difficult to get help now. By the time you get help, I was diagnosed late in life, and I've known that many, many people who are diagnosed late in life, especially if they're dependent on the public healthcare system. Um, so some of the issues that you, uh, some of the behaviors that may have been internalized over a long period of time because of the uh, undetected uh, mental disorder may hide other disorders that underlie. There's such a thing as comorbidity. Mm-hmm. So one or more disorders existing in the same person. Uh, again, this is depending on whether your healthcare professional uses the DSM-based diagnostic criteria or they use a spectrum-based uh, diagnostic criteria. Uh, the, uh, the DSM is generally what we use here and it's generally very strict. So there's a basket of symptoms and the symptoms must uh, be persistent over a prolonged period of time and severe enough to impair normal daily functioning. So that's the threshold, the Mm -hmm. clinical threshold. Um, The the issue is that some disorders can hide within the symptoms of other disorders. So, like I said earlier, uh, my clinical diagnosis, the initial clinical diagnosis was for clinical depression because the mania side of bipolar disorder was missed during the assessment and only came out later on when I had a bad reaction to the medication. Mm. My disorder right now, the, the, the diagnosis, can also have comorbidity with ADHD, can also be explained by other symptoms. So combined with late diagnosis and internalized behaviors over a long, prolonged period of time, diagnosis may change over time as well. And it's not uncommon for people to receive one or more diagnosis as they progress. I've been seeing a doctor for 11 years. So for almost 11 years, that diagnosis has been relatively stable. But now I am exploring the possibility that I may have ADHD as well. So I'm waiting for an assess- my assessment with my clinical psychologist coming up. And if that is, it's probably, there is a reason to believe that I do have ADHD. But that's dependent on whether my assessment goes through. When the, if the assessment finds that I do have ADHD, then my treatment and my therapy may change as well. And even my cocktail of medication. So back to your question, com- the lack of early intervention combined with the lack of access to healthcare, where people get diagnosed late in life, mm-hmm. may um, explain why uh, some disorders hide uh, behind one disorder. Mm. And from what I understand, I guess, you know, we are also familiar with the long gaps between appointments in the public health care system, right? I mean, something like a mental health condition or mental health disorder, you need, um, like you said, has you need to observe sort of and, and understand a person's symptoms for a long time. And so if you don't have that regular relationship with your mental health provider, that also impacts how you might be diagnosed, right? Yep, that's right. We'll go for a quick break now and continue this discussion when we come back. On the show with me today are Shaleen Krasan, a clinical psychologist and Hasbi, a lived experience advocate, on what to expect after receiving a mental health disorder diagnosis. We'll be right back, so keep it here on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. You are listening to the third episode of our mini-series, My Mind and Me, which explores how you can start your mental health journey. So on today's show, I'm joined by Hasbi, a lived experience advocate, and Shalene Krasant, a clinical psychologist, to share about what to expect after receiving a mental health disorder diagnosis and what that journey looks like. Um, spoiler alert, it's not going to be linear, it's not going to be the same for everyone and it's definitely not going to be an easy one. Now, to pick up where we left off, um, Shalene, if someone is feeling unsure about their diagnosis and like you mentioned, for some people, you know, the stigma does affect how they perceive their diagnosis, right? Is it important that they bring up these feelings with their therapist? Of course, yes, because how you accept your diagnosis really does affect how um, uh, well your treatment plan goes. So if you are still in a state where you are denying the diagnosis or you're denying the symptoms that are existing there, you can't be able to deal with it. So let's say you're saying, no, I do not, um, I do not have mania, for example. Then if you disagree that you don't have it, then you, wouldn't, you yourself wouldn't try to practice having to deal with the mania that's happening. So in therapy, is just the brainstorming part, which I have to manage my clients' expectations all the time. You come for therapy, we talk about how to handle things, but the practice happens outside, right? Outside when you're at home, when you're at work and stuff. But if you are in a state of denial and you don't accept it yet, it's very hard for you to practice it outside. So nothing will actually change then. So we do have a talk about stigma because that's a really big block to looking at the diagnosis for what it is. And what a diagnosis is, is just for you to be able to know how to treat yourself. It's like a segue to treatment. The purpose of labelling is not to shame anyone, it's to help you identify what your treatment plan is. Yeah. If I can add on, I think that's actually very, very important. Um, a diagnosis is only as useful as the help. It allows you mm. to access... So, uh, and a lot of people are dealing with self-stigma, societal stigma, institutional stigma. And on another point that I would like to add some context is that um, this goes back to grieving. The moment that you come to acceptance is when you begin to realize that you are responsible for your own well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, and staying in denial for a very long time is actually a barrier to getting better. Yeah. Mm. No. I understand, of course, there's no set time for this, right? But I guess, is there sort of a, a range of, you know, for if, if someone comes and starts seeing a mental health provider for therapy, um, for mental health condition, I guess, is there usually a time frame within which with, uh, that you'll start to consider that that person might have a mental health disorder? Um, yes. I mean, there's a rough time frame, but usually it really is dependent on a few things. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that is dependent on the type of professional you see. So usually psychiatrists are quite quick to see symptoms and be able to diagnose immediately. And we must understand why that's the case because psychiatrists are doctors first. They go to medical school. They focus on looking at symptoms, right, and how to solve symptoms. So that's where they're trained at and that's why it's easier and faster for them to diagnose. Mm. Compared to a psychologist, for example, uh, we're trained in trying to solve the root of the problem. So sometimes we take a bit longer time. Mm. We do more uh, different kinds of subjective assessment 
assessments. We talk to you, we try to find out more root issues. So that might you know, affect your time frame, right? And also the type of diagnosis that we're talking about. So, for example, things like depression, anxiety, is a bit faster to see because the symptoms are a bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like bipolar, schizophrenia, those things need to be assessed over time. Right, so you like what has been said. You know, you can be showing depressive symptoms right now, but if you're in a cycle, you have to wait till your depressive episode goes away, your your mania episode comes, or a hypermania episode comes, and that might take time. So you need to do maybe a few months of you know just um, tracking, um, as well as certain assessments that needs to be done. You first like like again, as you said, you know, for ADHD, you need to do some assessments. To do that, it might take two or three sessions. You might wait for the report to come out and all those things. So that might also take maybe two or three sessions. So it's very subjective, um, and again. It also depends on the approach a professional is taking. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking more CBT route, CBT is a bit more objective. So they do have, you know, they do follow symptoms and things like that. So that's also a bit faster. Whereas if your the therapist is more psychodynamic, it's a little bit longer because the way they approach it is by doing history taking, you know, talking about the past and getting information. So that might also take a bit longer. So it's very subjective depending on the person and the diagnosis. Mm. And after someone receives a diagnosis, you know, do people view it as sort of a physical illness where, okay, there's a certain course of treatment and then after that you might be cured? Is that a view that people still have? I think so sometimes when they don't understand what mental health is. That's why we have to educate what mental health is. They, they, they see it as like a problem solve, problem solve, right? When in fact, it's not that objective. Um, mm-hmm. Mental health issues are common for everyone at any time. So when we educate that and say, you know what, it's really normal to have a problem. Just sometimes you may fit an extra symptom that fits a diagnosis, that's it. But having a condition, a mental health condition is very common and normal. So even if, let's say, you no longer fit a diagnosis, you may still be struggling. And that's okay. So you don't fit a diagnosis, but you may still need help. Um, and everyone needs help, right? That's why therapy is there. So we have to educate the client on that um, and that it's not that clear as cured or not cured. Mm. Yeah. And, they, and they can't come to you saying, okay, after 10 sessions with a psychologist, I could be cured from this, right? It's, yeah. it's a journey of sorts. We manage your expectations and then we tell them, you know, uh, yes, you don't fit the symptoms anymore, which is great. You're mm-hmm. getting much better. Uh, but we still want to check in. We still want to see whether you're coping well. And sometimes uh, your environmental triggers plays a part. You may be cured, so to speak, right? You don't fit the diagnosis anymore, but something happens in your life and then you're back to, you know, square one again. Mm. So it's not that you're not cured. You're just affected by environmental triggers, right? Um, and that's something we also have to educate. So sometimes clients feel like they're regressing when they go back to being in a diagnosis, which is not true. Mm-hmm. right? It's not a regression. You've already learned things. It's just sometimes life is not that great. you know. So that's also another thing we educate them as well. Mm. So how do you then help um, clients manage? Right? Because you know there are certain cases where not everything can be resolved by medications or by psychotherapy, that there are triggers, um, external triggers, that can sort of cause them to um, develop these symptoms again. How do you help them? What is, I guess, your role as a mental health provider in those situations? So this depends on the framework that your therapist has. So like for mine, and I can only say from my experience, is Mm -hmm. that I follow a more feminist framework, which means that I do highlight that, you know, even if you have a mental disorder, whether you have a serious one, not serious one, doesn't matter, your environmental triggers greatly impact your mental health. So that's something we talk about early on as well. And, you know, if 
and and you know if there are external things that you know um, affect you and and affect your mental health, then we talk about how can we address them. And sometimes we can't change those things, right? For an example, if you are a minority, if you are a woman, or if you are you know part of the LGBT community, it's very difficult for you to um, be able to have great mental health. So then we talk about okay, how can we still be able to have some level of agency within a space that you're powerless. Mm -hmm. So that's where we always talk about advocacy. We say, okay, we cannot change it ourselves. We have to change it within community. So let's just talk about it. Go and post it on your Instagram. Go and tweet about it. You know, like what Hasbi does is great, right? He goes on Twitter, he talks about it, and he gets people to have these discussions. And that's what advocacy looks like. And that is part of the therapy process. It's part of empowering people to change the bigger system together. So people might say I alone can't change the systems, but I think when you work together in groups and when you talk about it and you advocate, you are changing the system and yourself because you're empowering yourself to know that you have power to change things. So that realization is important in your overall therapy process because, like I said, it gives you empowerment. If I can add a bit, uh, <laughs> and thank you for the shout-out. <laughs> of course. Um, going back to the ideas about grieving the, the loss of your old self and coming to an acceptance and mm -hmm. which then allows you to move forward. One of the things that acceptance gives you is the realization that, that you are responsible for your own well-being and the exercise of that responsibility, exercising of your autonomy is actually very, very empowering. Mm -hmm. So while we have limited power within a larger structure, Mm -hmm. You can, if you can exercise that autonomy and that power within that limited structure, it helps make people feel better. Mm. So you can't fight against the machine, but you're chipping away at the smaller, smaller bits of it. And keep at it long enough, you find other people who are chipping away at different parts of the machine, and then you build a wider front of, of empowerment. So I think that's also very useful it's part of building a support structure for yourself as well. Mm -hmm. And part of that is then understanding what's triggering your mental health um, mm. issues as well, right? I know, Hasmi, you, I know you're not a fan of the term of, of saying people fall off the wagon because that, <laughs> that implies that they themselves are doing something wrong, right? Sure. Well, okay. I will use the term safety planning when you were asking earlier about uh, what do we do to manage after getting a diagnosis, what do we do to manage environmental stresses and triggers. Mm -hmm. And you can do it by looking at basically harm reduction. I use the term harm reduction. So what is the highest risk? Uh, so what's your highest risk trigger and what, does, what, what, what negative or harmful behavior does it trigger? You address that first, then you work down the line. So... I don't think we do enough of that in our healthcare system, right? We don't really guide clients in terms of, like Shani said earlier, is like a lot of the work done in therapy is brainstorming. But the majority of the work is done by you outside in your workplace, at home, with your family, with your friends. Part of that work involves safety planning. Um, I use that term. It may not be used by a lot of professionals, but I use it. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that how do I minimize my uh, reactions, my negative or harmful reactions to environmental stresses and triggers. First step is identifying. I, and I, 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 I have identified my own triggers, like bad news from politicians. That's one of the triggers. Mm -hmm. uh, lack of funding for uh, our healthcare system. That's another trigger. 
how do I manage the... Uh, and I know that these bring out um, uh, all sorts of reactions from me. How do I manage that? I tweet about it. I talk to my friends about it. Mm -hmm. I write to... Uh, I talk to my MP about it. Uh, granted, not everyone may find these uh, uh, things accessible for them. But the trick is finding what is accessible. And that's not, not always easy. Mm -hmm. mm. Now... Part of all of this, of, of managing your mental health disorder after diagnosis is that what you said, right? The, how, how you learn to manage it on your own um, after you brainstorm with your mental health provider. But if I could sort of look at the public health care system where we know that we don't have enough mental health providers, we don't have enough psychiatrists, psychologists or even counsellors, people struggle to get an appointment. Um, and when they do have an appointment, the, their next follow-up could be very far ahead. Yeah. What are people's options then to manage in between if they're really struggling? You know, I mean, of course, we every time we talk about mental health issues, we direct people to helplines. But mm. to what extent is that useful? Well, I would say that one of the issues is that we don't really have um, a good handoff between the different mechanisms that we have in the healthcare system. So helplines are have a role to play. Uh, Counselors have a role to play. So do psychiatrists, so do, uh, so do clinical, clinical psychologists, and the wider society. Um, we don't have enough resources to go around, and what resources that we do have are very, very strained. This is a tough question to answer because it's highly dependent on uh, what, what resources the individual has. Mm -hmm. I would generally recommend building support structures with friends and family, Again, not very, very easy. Mm -hmm. uh, as a person themselves, as a client, may struggle with stigma and discrimination. That stigma and discrimination may itself come from friends and family around them. Um, another, one, another option is to build um, support networks with other clients. Again, highly dependent on what you can access and what your disorder is actually, because for some disorders, it's actually not advised to uh, fraternize with other clients with the same disorder. Um, one of the other things that people can do is reach out to your mental health provider in the public system. There are mechanisms, there are resources available, but they're not uh, distributed equitably. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have um, rehab centres uh, that have occupational therapy that you can go out and basically hang out at. Or you could involve yourself with a club or, I guess, pick up a hobby end of the day, whatever works and helps minimize harm to yourself and others, mm -hmm. that's what works for you. And I can't really give a specific answer for that. Mm, it's very individualized. Yeah. I guess, Shalene, you know, turning to you, you're in private practice. And how, and, and if that person has the resources, right, especially financial resources to see um, their mental health provider regularly, how often, or how do you decide how often you would mm. see your client? Um, okay, so before I answer that, I would like to add to what has been mm -hmm. mentioned just now, which I think will follow up with that question. Um, I think one very important thing that people forget when they go for their therapy sessions or their appointments is that how much they can ask for in sessions. So, for example, you your sessions are far apart, right? You can ask for your therapist or your, your psychiatrist to recommend activities, uh, recommend groups, support groups, recommend things that you can join and do in the meantime. Mm -hmm. We forget that we can actually ask for stuff. Um, so maybe you can ask, you know, okay, what kind of activities, what kind of 
tools do I need to do? How to journal if I need to mm. journal? How to do grounding techniques? How to do you know breathing exercises if I need to? Mm. When I'm having a panic attack, what do I do? Right? So mm. you can ask them to teach you and say, okay, this is something that will sustain me within that one, two months until I see you again. Um, and one thing that really helps and I, I've noticed with my clients is that they really struggle with knowing what to tell their therapist when they see it, when they see them after two, three months, right? They feel like, oh, no, there's so much to say and I, I, I don't feel satisfied after the session. That's a big problem. Mm. So I would always recommend my clients to like, okay, you keep track of every day, you know, uh, for the next two months until you see them again and keep track of your moods, your triggers, uh, your symptoms. And then one day before the session, you summarize everything. One day for your appointment, you summarize, okay, from this past two months, I see a trend of me being triggered by my family a lot. I see a trend that whenever I drink, I don't do my medication and I'm more suicidal. So then you have a trend and when you see your, your, your psychiatrist or psychologist, you can go and say, this is the problems that I have. How can I feel? What can I do next? So you're, you're kind of thinking forward already. You're kind of thinking, what can I do to prepare myself for the next two months? Can I add a bit more? Mm -hmm. Actually... Okay, one of the things that uh, is at my disadvantage right now because I've been diagnosed for over 11 years. So the earlier earlier years are a bit fuzzy to me, but once uh, Shaline brought up journaling, I think that's also very important. Mm -hmm. uh, one is important because you need to, depending on the disorder, but generally it's important because you want to keep track of your moods, sleep cycles, and eating, and your appetite. And then when you come for your sessions, there is something quantifiable that you can show. There's a trend of me being sleepless for the last five days because mm. some conditions have a threshold of that, right? a clinical threshold. Uh, unable to sleep for five days or more makes signal something is wrong. A journaling also provides a healthy outlook and also provides direction mm. in the sense that this is a problem that I have. I generally use mind mapping. Mm -hmm. So in the center of the mind map is the issue that I want to address and I draw circles in and out. Uh, around arrows pointing and I bring them to my therapist it helps me um, it helps me frame the therapy session and it also gives me something to do in the meantime <laughs> <laughs> Mm. I guess some of these things like you know tracking your sleep or your moods might seem tedious but over time it will help you understand yourself better right yeah. not just helping your mental health provider but helping yourself ultimately yeah. that's management that's basically uh, how to manage not just your moods but your medication everything that's what we call as management which is something you can share with your therapist you don't have to do this alone mm -hmm. right I have a client, a few clients especially those who have bipolar where we have like a shared Google Sheet Excel sheet uh, where we, you know, they were just marking, okay, today I had, you know, this, I was a bit more angry, a bit more sad, I'm doing this medication now, mm. I'm feeling suicidal today, what are my triggers? So over time when I meet them, I'm like, okay, let's look at the past two weeks, how were you? And then we already have room to discuss. Mm. So this is for both of us in the relation, in, in our uh, therapeutic relationship. Yeah, but, you know, back to your question earlier, right, about the more of the private uh, health um, sector, how often do we meet? Mm -hmm. Ideally, you want to meet, especially in the uh, initial phases, you want to meet at least once a week or once in two weeks because then you can, you know, really do things fast and you can tackle things when they're at their, you know, uh, the freshest, right? Um, also, but but we have to uh, acknowledge that it's expensive sometimes. So some clients cannot afford to do once a week. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I always give options like, okay, if once a week cannot, we try to do once in two weeks. Once in three weeks and once a month sometimes may not be ideal for certain people because uh, of their condition. 
And also, it may feel more of a check-in session because it's not enough time to talk about things. A lot of things have happened within the one month. So usually we start off with one to two weeks and then we space out. So that's where, and I have to manage my client's expectations of how therapy ends. It doesn't really end, it just spaces out over time. And so you go to one month and then maybe two months and three months and six months and then you come in for a once a year check-in. Just to see whether your coping mechanisms are okay, do you need any refreshing of the tools that we've learned? So that's ideally how the, the process would look like. But this is more private, where mm. you have the choice to come in and out whenever you want. Mm. Mm. All right. It really depends from the individual to individual what you can afford and access exactly, ultimately. Yes. And uh. They also have a threshold for remission. Mm-hmm. So if you don't display symptoms for X number of e- months or years, then the sessions get spaced out further and further apart. So generally, maintenance, while the client does a lot of the management on their own. Mm. Mm. Um, Therapy is a process and it's Mm. one that could get spread out over time. But how do you know if at some point, you know, you're not coping well um, with managing your condition? So um, I think it's really important for people to manage your expectations first. So the disclaimer about therapy is that usually when you start out therapy, you will have a period of time where you will feel that there will be a dip in how you feel. You might feel worse than what you actually felt like before coming in. Mm-hmm. Even with medications as well, with certain kind of medications. And your me- expectations are so important because if you expect to feel better and then you go in and then you feel worse, you're going to feel absolutely worse after that because you're expecting to feel better, right? Mm-hmm. So... The reason why you have a dip is because you're finally, first of all, talking about the stuff that you haven't talked about in a while. You're talking about things that hurt. If you're doing history taking, you're talking about the past a lot. So it's going to be quite painful in the first two, three sessions. So you have to be mindful. And I always tell my clients, the moment you feel like, oh, it's nothing's working out, it's, you know, I, I'm not getting better, I want you to push on a little bit more. I say, have a mini Charlene in your head saying, you know, push on a bit more, two, three sessions and see how you feel like. Or come to session and talk about what you're feeling so we can address it. So that is really important for therapists to explain to their clients, um, even with medication. But let's say over a period of time, you've tried the treatment plan that your therapist has talked about um, and your therapist say, well, you should be feeling better or we've already done this and there's still no improvements and you really feel something's not right, it's time to finally reevaluate. Talk to your therapist about it. Something's not right, something's not happening. And then maybe they can change your treatment, Mm -hmm. something else, or... They might change your approach. So from a CBT-oriented one, we change to a psychodynamic one and see how that works. Or the last one is we refer out. It's very important to know that just because you're with one therapist doesn't mean the therapist is perfect and fits you the best. Sometimes you may need to go to someone else that's trained differently. Maybe you uh, need to fit someone else's personality a little bit more. So that's something that you want to be very mindful of as well. If I can add a bit of context from my own uh my own treatment and my own journey. I think for the first six months of therapy, I saw my doctors, this is after my diagnosis for uh, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, with the reassessment, I saw a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist at the same facility. So it's much, much better in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, it was two separate facilities. I think for the first six months, every therapy session it was me just crying for the whole session. Mm. And what Charlene mentioned earlier, I think it's very, it resonates uh, a lot with me because for the first time in your life, you've got someone listening to you mm. and you're just letting it all out. And yeah, you feel worse for a long time. Mm-hmm. And even if you're recovering, uh, 
you're still a human being and you experience dips, ups and downs of moods. Uh, the real question is, do those ups and downs fulfill the clinical criteria? Are they impairing your daily functioning? Where up to the point severe enough to impair daily functioning. And when it does, um, then you should bring it up with the doctor. This is one of the things that helps people falling off the wagon. Mm-hmm. I fell, fell off the wagon, I think, a couple of times. I defaulted on treatment for nine months. But after I got it out of my system, first I should tell you maybe why I fell off the wagon. I just got tired, the discipline of it. Going to therapy, eating right, sleeping early. It's not, not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I think a lot of it was me having uh, unrealistic expectations of myself. Hmm. So for nine months, I defaulted. And then I said, okay, let's go back to see my doctors. And they were good enough to see me again. And we continued treatment for that. And I was very lucky that nothing untoward happened during that nine months. It could have easily gone... Uh, badly because mm-hmm. if you want to stop medication you need to taper off slowly you can't stop immediately I didn't I basically just let loose for nine months and just enjoyed myself without having to submit submit myself to the uh, discipline of managing my disorder because it's not easy it's very tiring mm-hmm. you need to you need to be aware of your moods you need to be aware of your sleep so that mental load can weigh a lot of people down mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think we talk about it enough Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm grateful that uh, you've decided to bring this topic up today. Mm. Yeah, therapy is very uncomfortable. That's the first thing I tell my clients. I'm like, look, what you're going to do is very uncomfortable. You're not going to feel great. You're not going to finish a session and go like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm feeling good and mm-hmm. my mental health is great. No, you're probably going to cry after a session and probably have to sleep for the whole day after that. Because it's very uncomfortable and taking care of yourself is very difficult, especially in this very capitalistic world that we live in. It's hard to eat and sleep and work and, you know, functioning is very difficult. So if you have fallen off the wagon for a while because it's hard to maintain that, it's really okay, right? It's very common. All of us struggle with it. It's just about picking yourself back up again and trying again. At some point, you will hit that mark and you will be able to sustain it. Yeah. And I guess on that note, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having you for inviting us. I've been speaking to clinical psychologist Shalene Krisan and Hasbi, a lived experience advocate, for some insights into what happens after you receive a mental health disorder diagnosis. And this is part of our mini series, My Mind and Me, exploring what it looks like to seek help for your mental health. So if you missed any part of today's episode, other episodes, you can look it up on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.